I, I always use this term of like we stand on the shoulder of giants, right? It's it's not like individualized medicine just sprang out of nowhere. The reason that Milosen could exist is because there has been years, if not decades, of work by other researchers throughout the world. Hey there, I'm Luca Fusarbassini. I'm a PhD student in computational biology at TPFL in Switzerland and you're listening to a biotech futurist. The biotech futurist aims to foster deep understanding and discussion about exciting hot topics in biotech. But I want to say from the beginning that it is by no means rigorous in teaching the subject. And for the sake of outreach, sometimes we need generalizations that of course simplify the reality of the science behind what we're discussing. But I can say that my guests and I do our best to be clear and to go in depth. You can imagine to be out with me and my expert guest for a friendly conversation to get a general understanding and more curiosity, having fun as much as I've had recording this podcast. This podcast has no sponsors and any reference is not meant to support any commercial activity. This podcast is a solo effort, so if you wish to support me, I'd be grateful if you followed the Biotech Futurist on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Instagram or your top podcasting platform and share it with your friends. With that said, I am excited to move on to today's conversation at the Biotech Futures. This week, we discuss interventional genomics. As the topic is huge, I thought to first discuss in 10 minutes some notions before interviewing our guest, Winston Yan, so to make sure that we are on the same page and do the most of our conversation. Interventional genomics was uh, uh, five years old recently, and I must say to begin with that most of what I'm about to tell you comes from my notes of a presentation that uh, Winston Young beautifully gave. Uh, so let's start from the beginning. Everything started with Nusinorson. Nusinorson uh, is a drug that was approved in 2016 for the treatment uh, of uh, spinal muscular atrophy, a debilitating uh, monogenic disease. And the treatment is an ASO or antisensoligonucleotide, which is delivered through spinal tap, so an injection through your spine, and it was shown to biodistribute well through the central nervous system. Nusinersen is what enabled the development of Milasen, which is the first drug for a single patient. It was approved in 2017 after an incredible journey guided by the U Lab in Boston, uh, which in 10 months led from the discovery of uh, a mutated gene in Mila's genome to therapy. And initially, the therapy really helped Mila, but luckily it was too late for her. And later, her mom, Julia, said that Mila sent showed that this is all indeed possible. Um, so rare diseases are actually not so rare. If you take uh, the sum of them, uh, they are actually quite widespread. And uh, it is often understated how much they do impact not only children but also their families. And also, only 5% of rare diseases uh, have FDA approved treatments. So, um, there's a huge for common guidelines for rare genetic diseases, and indeed, they share something uh, strong, which is the genetic base of most of them. And typically, uh, they only depend on a single or a few wrong letters in your genome. So there is some possibility to unify at least partly the treatment for these diseases. And for sure, we must state first that it is crucial to get early diagnostics and uh, in this area that we'll discuss in another episode, we are getting better day by day. Uh, sequencing at birth is an option that is becoming uh, more feasible and accepted. 
and it has lots of benefits that we'll discuss. And also prenatal testing uh, is something that can help, but the novel mutations and complex mutations may still happen, and in vitro fertilization uh, is something that n maybe not every people want to do and uh, has complications and limitations too. So back to rare diseases, uh, we were saying that it is crucial to find common principle to treat, and of course treatment is different from cure. Treatment is making a life better, the most that we can with current procedures. So um, ultimately, every genetic disease is different. So we we, sh we should find kind of a balance between common principles and uh, uh, the importance of remembering how every genetic disease has its own place. And uh, the wonderful metaphor that Winston delivered was that um, rare disease is becoming uh, much like surgery, where there are common principles, but in the end each intervention is unique. And now the uh, landscape in rare disease is quite heterogeneous and uh, only a few people can afford it. So typically there are parents building uh, the infrastructure for startups uh, to raise funds for research. And what we need is structure, a systematization of the field. And this includes proper regulatory framework. So uh, this is uh, more and more complicated as uh, number of one uh, treatments really cannot be supported by classical treated versus placebo clinical trials. Let's step back from the science um, and the milestones that enabled international genomics to rise. First is ASOS or antisense oligonucleotides, which I was mentioning before. And uh, they are a um, great point in favor is that they distribute very well through the central nervous system and uh, many of the most debilitating uh, single gene rare diseases indeed do affect the central nervous system. And the second is of course CRISPR and related tools which are versatile and uh, also in CRISPR world, some clinical trials are now finally underway. Uh, then I, I want to spend some words about the applicability and uh, the organization that is needed to bring the science to bedside. So first, financial sustainability is key in a place where market incentive is uh, low for pharma. And here we need highly trained and expert personnel where experience from previous trials will build step-by-step -step knowledge on the issues and the people and the expertise which is needed. And the second crucial thing to solve for applying science to bedside is the developing of grade, small batch clinical grade manufacturing for genomic medicines and delivery vectors. So uh, now how does all this relate to people's lives? First, informed consent is very important uh, given the risk-benefit balance in a field where the risk is high now and it will be high for some time. So the risk is acceptable and justified only when the cost of doing nothing is comparatively high. Then uh, we should decide who assumes the risk. And Winston said in his presentation that the maker of a scalpel generally does not assume the procedural risk, whereas pharma typically assumes a significant responsibility for drug safety. So this is a place full of risks and unknowns, and this is for sure to be discussed first with patients or at least with families. But then what happens after the patient undergoes genomic surgery? The follow-up on the target efficiency and the off-target effects for genomic medicines is crucial, and 
the difficulties that you want to follow up the disease, but you really don't have a comparison of how the child of a person would do without the treatment. So the idea is to kind of uh, follow the pretreatment uh, um, phase of a patient and uh, see if the worsening is a little better or if the worsening is uh, still strong in that case the medicine maybe is not really helping of, or hopefully if there is some uh, reversion of initial condition at least partly so um, of course uh, this will be complemented by serial sampling of uh, uh, cells for whole genome sequencing and biomarkers to establish correlations uh, and this will help the field of rare disease in general to establish methods to see how a patient is doing after medicine is delivered so this is also a community effort to establish common guidelines in order to develop uh, appropriate markers. And uh, um, we should always remember too that risk is acceptable only when the benefit for a patient is predicted to be sub substantial and uh, highly likely. Uh, so we must remember that we are not developing drugs on our patients. Um, I want to also mention another great concept that Wiston delivered, which is uh, the opening doors concept. So we were mentioning in the beginning of the episode that Piraza um, was uh, uh, creating the intellectual space for Milosin to occur. So it demonstrated that the intratical, so through your spine injection of ASOS is safe and can work. And now something happening in the CRISPR field is the ex vivo editing of hematopoietic stem cell and clinical trial is happening with ribonucleotide particle delivery and if this is approved then sickle uh, cell will enable to target other blood diseases so each step we do in the rare disease field is a step that opens doors for more and more diseases um, I also want to mention a couple of concepts from a review entitled therapies for rare diseases, therapeutic modalities, progresses and challenges ahead um, as I was mentioning, this field is very young and full of risks, geographically dispersed young patients, high diversity, also inside a single rare disease because, you know, a gene is big and mutations can occur at multiple places in the gene and this can result in different um, problems and phenotypes. And uh, we, this is a field where we need uh, knowledge foundations. So something that will be crucial also to follow up on patients after genomic intervention, as we were mentioning, is digital biomarkers, online platforms, and patient or caregiver reported outcomes. So biomarkers are defined as uh, something quantitative to measure about a biological process, and they must be well-defined and indeed precisely measurable with uh, well-described procedures and they also can measure something related to a pathological process or the response to an intervention. And specifically, digital biomarkers are enabled by wearables, um, home devices, uh, ingestible pills, uh, subcutaneous devices, uh, and everything uh, in the long run will be connected to your smartphone or some processing system uh, that will inform your doctors to monitor the disease progression, the response to treatment, uh, unexpected toxicities, uh, and uh, in the long run, also to increase the general understanding of diseases by pulling all this data together. A couple of examples would be the electrocardiogram recorded for a one year long for some uh, heart diseases, or inertial sensors to monitor for Marsco strength. And another thing that will be crucial is uh, patient reports. For instance, uh, uh, parents keeping track of the number of seizures per day in epileptic patients. 
and this all delineates the importance of monitoring after the genomic procedures and if this is indeed an area of active research uh, where post-treatment follow-up uh, must be objective, quantitative uh, and useful to really do what's useful for the patient. Let's now move on to today's conversation with Winston Yan. Hi everybody, today I have a great pleasure to host Winston Yan to discuss interventional genomics. Winston defines himself as a genome engineer and startup founder motivated by bringing genome editing therapies to treating patients with serious genetic disease. Winston, can you introduce us to your story, beliefs and goals briefly? Yeah, so my story, well, first of all, thank you, Luca, for having me. It's really a, a pleasure to, to be one of the inaugural episodes on your podcast. So for me, I think my story is complicated enough where it might be helpful to actually walk backwards from where I am right now. Um, I just finished my MD, PhD at Harvard uh, Medical School, um, and it was a bit of a, I would say, a scenic journey, as my friends say. Um, I actually started my MD, um, PhD program 11 years ago, finished my PhD during the peak of this CRISPR uh, craze, if you will, um, doing it at the Broad Institute in Feng Zhang's lab, working on therapeutic uses of uh, CRISPR-Cas9. And then f for me, afterwards, instead of returning back to medical school, I had this opportunity to start a biotech company. And so for about three and a half years, I was building Arbor Biotechnologies from uh, what they call from zero to one, where we grew from just myself and my co-founder to uh, 50 people. And then afterwards, I had the chance to um, really, through the privilege of my mentors, to go back to medical school and do the clinical training. And that's where I, I just saw this opportunity in front of me of individualized medicines. Like, how do we build to treat all those ultra-rare diseases that have no other treatments right now? That long tail um, where you have like five, ten patients that do not have any commercially available treatments and will not in the future. So that's how I, um, you know, through my own reading and research, uh, made my way to Tim, who's clearly a leader here, and onto the N1, N of One Collaborative. It's been this amazing experience so far working with them to build this framework for the best practices of how do we make individualized medicines um, and define the future for these ultra-rare diseases. Yeah. yeah, that's so inspiring and we're looking forward to hear more of how your story develops in the next few years. <laughs> so can you tell us more about what is N1CN? How did it start? Yeah, so, you know, I would say that the history of the N1C was really a brainchild of, um, and the N1C being the N of One Collaborative, it's really something that Julia Vitarello and Tim Yu were imagining um, even from the early days uh, when they were thinking about Milicin. So they thought that there needed to be this centralized hub that provided this glue for the academic efforts and you could establish the best practices um, that can then be distributed to the rest of the, the practitioners in this field. It's a really new field. The N of one individualized treatments have a lot of heterogeneity. Yeah. And in order to actually build what's safe for patients and what's best um, for, you know, that's our um, best shot at actually helping them with their disease, you needed to have the centralized hub of information. 
And then the other part of it is that in order to interact with external stakeholders that are key to this, like the FDA, the NIH, disease organizations, you wanted a single place to interact with them most efficiently. Um, so you don't have all the redundancies and the, you know, the um, kind of duplicated efforts that sometimes are, it would just yeah. be efforts that are not helpful to this whole effort. So I think you know, what we are trying to provide is this centralized intellectual framework and the best practices of the field all done in the collaborative, transparent manner. Um, yeah, so that's, that's that. great, yeah. So how did you join all these and what were your main ideas when you started doing this? Yeah, so the the end of one collaborative actually started before I joined it. Um, the first meeting was in June of 2021. Tim, he gathered together clinicians and researchers from other academic medical centers, in, both in the U.S. and the Europe, um, so that you know it would be international from the beginning. Um, he pulled in folks from nonprofits in the ultra rare disease space, like Enlorem, and other industry groups. Um, plus, you know, folks in government, just everyone who is anyone in this field. And then since then, there have been regular meetings where um, the N1C has tried to self-organize to provide both resources and best practices for um, everyone who is working on these. The, you know, for me, I actually was introduced to the N1 Collaborative through Tim, where I, um, let's see, he was just the leader in the field that people knew. And as soon as I started asking around about how do you make CRISPR into a tool for individualized medicines, they were like, oh, you should talk to Tim. Yeah. So for me, I emailed him probably incessantly about how do we actually bring um, CRISPR into individualized medicines. You know, it'd be really great if with gene editing you could just swap out a targeting mechanism or you know the targeting sequence, and it can make the genetic correction um, for a different disease easily. And I, I shared all this with Tim. He absolutely agreed with this vision and says that ASOs were important, but likely the starting point, and we will need other tools like CRISPR in the future. Yeah, that's great. And maybe we can spend a couple of minutes now here. Why CRISPR not now, but ASOs now and CRISPR in the future? Well, I think that the big thing is that there's a, you know, ASOs have a very distinguished history of development, and there's so much that we've learned of how to make them safely um, and effectively. I mean, we, I, I always use this term, like, we stand on the shoulder of giants, right? It's, it's not like individualized medicine just sprang out of nowhere. The reason that Milosen could exist is because there has been years, if not decades, of work by other researchers throughout the world um, and companies like Ionis pushing forward the safety and the science of um, medicines like Nusinersen, right? And so CRISPR is still early in that phase. I truly believe that we will have the CRISPR equivalents to Nusinersen that then um, unlock different organ systems and you know like cell types for for future N of one medicines. Yeah, I remember this opening doors concept that you mentioned in uh, your presentation to our lab meeting, and this was really you know a very clear metaphor with all what's happening out there. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And you know I think there's benefits to CRISPR. Um, for example, if you a lot of disorders with this clear genetic correction, many of us in the world, we rock, walk around with the wild type of that, right? So we should know that if we can correct certain cell types, that, or the specific mutation to that wild type in certain cells, in certain organs at a, you know, a time where it's still beneficial, that seems like a hypothesis that should reduce the burden of disease. 
Meanwhile, with RNAs, sometimes you know you're upregulating a little bit. You're you're um, you know changing a splice, um, you know a splice uh, configuration like that is not as clear of a therapeutic hypothesis. Um, so I think there's a simple elegance to genome editing that could be powerful. Mm-hmm. The challenge is that it is a more permanent edit, right? You want to super be sure that this is good. Exactly. And so I think that's why there's a lot of, um, I mean, it's it's good in many ways, too, because that means that you could have a durable therapy that's lifelong. But at the same time, because of it, you can't take back the treatment, so to speak, right? You can't just stop giving someone a pill or an ASO or um, even like, you know, a biologic in the same way. So I think there's a lot that we need to think carefully about so that we can have the best safety and uh, efficacy combined. Yeah, and there's a lot of great research going on in this field, especially also for delivering these technologies to the right cell types at the right moment and with enough quantity. And that's maybe a topic for another podcast episode. So maybe now we can switch to the second big question of today's episode. So can you tell us about the objective outcome measures? Can you provide us with some examples in the rare disease field? And what kind of measures will be developed in the next few years and what would be at best one uh, measuring clinical trial where you can't compare control versus treatment? Right. Uh, so yeah, yeah. The, so there's a, a those are all extremely good questions. There's frankly a lot to unpack there within the. Um, all of your questions have sub answers to them, but I'll try my best to at least start from the the broadest sense and then go into some of the examples and details. So the first is that we need to lay out why do we need clinical outcome measures, right? Um, I think there's often an instinct when you when you're seeing a, a patient with severe need or, or just a, you know a really tragic diagnosis, like why can't we do anything to help them, right? The reality is that when we do an intervention on a patient, especially one that is untested, we need to make sure that it's not only safe but we have an expectation of benefit. So then it gets to the question of how do you measure that benefit? How do you rigorously say, yes, this person who received an intervention has ended up in a better place than before versus we just tried something on them um, you know, without any rigorous measurements? So of course you'd like to say that there's some effects that are so obvious, like someone who couldn't walk can walk again, or they couldn't see and now can see again. Or, or with some of the early like, um, Nusenarsen results where they were just like amazing and, you know, you didn't have to really have rigorous clinical outcome measures. They still did. Um, but oftentimes they're more subtle, right? So in the, nor- in the traditional clinical trial sense, you have these randomized clinical trials that are the gold standard because they can tease out the subtle differences of whether a treatment worked or not. So here now we think about individualized medicine, right? What is your case and what is your control? You don't really have one, right? So. Um, that is a place where we need to think about how do we do it. Well, yeah. you know, you can start by saying let's measure somebody's individual baseline, right? Um, you start with their baseline while you're trying to make the drug um, in the laboratory, and that way you can maybe differentiate from whether there's a delta from their baseline. But then, how do you differentiate that from the natural history of the disease, right? Sometimes when you're measuring seizures, as kids their brains develop and they, you know, the neural connections form and there's pruning that happens, all of that biology, you actually naturally get fewer seizures. So yeah, also because there's so much heterogeneity and so few cases. Yeah, exactly. So I think what, you know, this is just a a sneak peek at some of the challenges. 
I didn't even talk about bringing in the families, right? Sometimes what clinicians think of as the most beneficial um, clinical outcome measure may actually differ from what the family feels is most important, right? Again, going to the example of seizures, a clinician might say, I want to reduce the burden of anti-epileptic drugs, right? Because they sometimes have their toxicity. Mm -hmm. um, but a family might say, the seizures are well controlled on these drugs. I want them to be able, to, I want my child to be able to communicate with me so that they can become more independent. And yeah, and that's value enough, yeah. Exactly, so I'm not saying that either viewpoint is correct or incorrect, yeah. but there's just these nuances you have to consider at the end of one level. Yeah, so how can you also track not only efficacy, but safety in parallel with efficacy? And yeah, I guess here it's crucial to collect aggregated data to know what to look for possible toxicities, because first, if you want to track something, you have to know what you're looking for, or at least have some broad concept that you can really then decide what to look for, for each class of individualized medicine. So first ASOS, then CRISPR and whatever. What do you think this will entail? Yeah, I, again, I think we're actively in the process of developing this. And yeah. my, my first thought would be that we, again, back to that concept of standing on the shoulders of giants, right? These medicines, we are, we lower the risk to um, any potential patient receiving this new drug by changing as few parameters as possible from the older medic, or not the, the, the prior medication. And so what that means is, for example, um, antisense oligos in intrathecal space with nusinersen, we keep the chemistries the same, we keep the delivery method the same, um, all of the protocols are kept in the same way so that we understand, like you said, what are some of our expectations of um, any clinical outcomes that are you know, not ideal. At the same time, I think there is this aspect of collecting maybe more data than we need in the beginning simply because we want to capture as much as possible um, and just make sure that we're not missing anything. It's always a balance in clinical medicine of saying, how do you kind of um, be targeted with your approaches to cl collect you know, intervenable data versus how do you not miss something? Um, and there's a question of cost as well. So mm -hmm. all these are questions that I think we are in the process of building out the, the protocols for and the best practices. So what criteria do you look for in deciding the right outcome measures? So that's a that's a very great question, actually a, a topic that we are actively working on. So as you can imagine, in individualized medicines, you don't have the benefit of averaging, right? So in this case, if there's noise in your biomarker or your outcome measure, um, high individual variability, that can disguise the signal that you're actually looking for. So it's important that we have something that can meaningfully have a um, you know, variability that's well controlled. On top of that, you want to be able to see a change, so you want a biomarker that is sensitive to a change on the N of 1 level, as well as sensitive to change in a reasonable time frame that you're trying to, uh, to measure this clinical trial, right? So for example, if you're trying to say, um, have someone maybe regain mobility, that's something that might take longer to measure um, potentially over the course of years rather than over the course of months for initial clinical trial. I would say the last thing is just thinking through what is most relevant to that individual's disease history and trajectory. Um, Luca, I think you mentioned that there's each individual may be um, at different points of severity of a disease, right? 
Um, so maybe there's some outcome measures that are relevant no longer to a particular individual because they progress beyond that or they're in a particularly severe form of the disease. So sure. anchoring it back in that individual's own disease and their presentation is really important. So those are just a, a few of the considerations that we think about when we're um, designing those outcome measures for mm -hmm. the N1 population. And this requires case by case, and I guess, uh, uh, analysis because every time it's different. As you were saying, uh, every patient is different, and every patient is a different trajectory point in rare disease. So yeah. yeah, and I think at the beginning that will be the case where we try to be very thoughtful about this. But the whole point of the N of One collaborative is that we can develop these frameworks and best practices so that it no longer, at some point, it doesn't become this bespoke thing every single time. But you really start developing. Uh, you know, essentially a pathway that you take um, a given patient through, even though they are unique, they have a unique um, mutation, their own presentation. Um, you know, again, back to that analogy of surgery, there's protocols and ways that you evaluate a given surgical candidate, even if the individual anatomy, their disease history, their, you know, their lives have been different. Yeah, that's the beauty of scaling science from single anecdotes to making something systematic and accessible to most of the people who need this. Yeah, there's this, I mean, we, we had this discussion lately where the, the plural of anecdote is not data. Um, and I think that's, yeah. an important, that's an important thing that we have to keep in mind that just by piecing these together, we don't suddenly become, uh, you know, we don't try to make conclusions that are beyond what they can say, but I think they can be very informative and in guiding our practice. Sure, that's insightful wisdom, thank you. Um, so yeah, you were mentioning uh, biomarkers, uh, and I'd love to hear more about what you think about biomarkers, molecular biomarkers, digital biomarkers, and how to visit patients who are a few and widespread all over the world in this rare disease field. Probably best to break up the, the molecular biomarkers and the, the digital ones, right? So I think molecular biomarkers are something that traditionally in clinical trials people look for as a more... Um, just sensitive measure of exactly the biological pathway that you're addressing. It may not be a clinical endpoint like you know, being able to have speech again or um, you know, reducing your ataxia um, burden, but for us, it truly is um, important to have um, molecular markers that can tell us whether or not a particular ASO is actually um, doing what we think it's doing at the on-target. They may not exist. Um, they may still need to be developed. And again, that's work in progress from many yeah. groups. I would say that the digital biomarkers are, are an interesting new area that has been potentiated by COVID, right? Because so many of these clinical trials that required patients to come on site every couple of months, you actually see a neurologist. If you think about it, that's not very many data points for a given clinical trial, right? especially when you're talking about an N of one trial where you're just seeing there's, there could be significant day-to-day -day variability um, of these interactions. Um, we need something that perhaps via video or, or via even just you know, apps that people can download onto their, uh, their home iPads for, for working with their, their, you know, their children or, or the, the patients who have these diseases. I think that could be an incredible way of having more granular time points. And then I also think about how can we learn from the consumer electronics industry, right? Like instead of using your Fitbit or technologies like that, these activities trackers just for counting your steps or your calorie burn, if they can be really used in a manner to track like, you know, abnormal movements or just seeing that um, like capturing seizures in a more, um, 
like rigorous way at home versus just using a notebook. I mean, those are all things that could um, benefit the the quality of the data that's being gathered, as well as reduce the burden that you know the caretakers have to to record every single thing all the time. Yeah, I'm super curious about what will happen in this field in the next few years. Also for this part, that's super beautiful. So yeah, now maybe we can switch topic a bit and let's talk about how to make the most of collaboration. So N of One Collaborative emphasizes the importance of data sharing. What data needs to be gathered and how will standards and databases be established? I mean, what is the fundamental rationale behind what your team is working on? What kind of data do you need to generate the most and what technological achievements, advancements need to be soon developed? I think if we're talking about you know the fundamental rationale or like why do we care so much about the data sharing, there's this idea that I have in mind that it really is a privilege that some of these patients are donating not only their time but their bodies towards towards not only helping themselves but ultimately they know they're at the forefront of medical technologies. They're donating their themselves really towards advancing the science. That's big. Yeah, knowing that they um, may not be the ones to fully benefit from this. So if there's a way that if we capture all of the data that we can and use it to power up the next N of one studies, which could be happening just like months from now, right? If we could do that in an efficient, rigorous, and like widely distributed way, um, that seems like it would fit both the you know, the gratitude that we have, as well as the best practice for how do we move this field forward. So, and, and I think this is opposed to a, a traditional clinical trial model where maybe there's a pharma company that's sponsoring it and they would aggregate and keep all the data internally, make sure that it's all, um, you know, I guess it's, it's all up to snuff or at least it's like controlled before it's released. There's good reasons for that too, and I think it's appropriate for the types of development that they're doing. But with these very heterogeneous N of one trials, it feels like there's a special need for um, something that is um, open and collaborative. So then that gets back to your question of what types of data do you want to collect, right? It's just complicated, I guess. Yeah. And I think at the highest level, you can collect both preclinical data as well as clinical data. What I mean by preclinical data, say, you know, with ASOs, you're, you're looking at what are the principles to target a particular mutation or gene. And you don't want labs necessarily to reinvent the wheel if there is a very similar, um, you know, approach that's already been tried and it didn't work. So I think that's one rationale of um, just learning from others, positive data, but also the negative data, which is really important. I think the second thing from clinical data is we think a lot about how can we provide a way that allows you know investigators to access like to almost answer questions in the very lonely space of N of one trials of saying, oh wait, I wonder if what I'm seeing in this particular patient is actually a class effect of a particular drug or something that's like a safety issue that I have to address in my patient right now. And just having this database be readily accessible to the investigators um, at their fingertips, really, um, that could help be this resource for them as they move forward the, the individualized medicines. I think this is also very interesting on the side of how technically implement all these. I mean, the ideas are great, and we want to make the most of them by really creating the infrastructure at the technological level that can support this, right? 
Yeah. And, and this is a non-trivial task, right? Because first of all, it's all the academic data centers might have their own standards or how the data is collected, right? Um, so what we, this is what we call a federated data uh, model where there's some control at the individualized centers, but also um, there needs to be some centralization. Otherwise, you lose, you're going to have a bunch of, of um, you know, decentralized databases. I think the other thing is that how do you anonymize it, right? Sure. N of 1, by its very definition, I think it's, we're going to get to a point where someone's genome is a unique identifier of oneself, right? But as much as possible, if you can play by the standards of, um, you know, anonymity, making sure that the patient's information and um, is protected, um, I mean, those are also challenges that we need to think through uh, for very, very unique individuals. Sure, that's very interesting. And yeah, also related to this, it's important to consider that the mutation in a patient that may lead to a disease is also dependent on the whole genomic uh, background that the patient has. So you really want to know the most you can to make the most for a patient, but at the same time, uh, want to make sure that their data is protected enough for whatever reason, right? Yeah, actually, that point is a great lead into your, your next question of like, how do you select a patient, right? Because you're right, some genomic mutations actually do have lots of um, regulation by other factors within their genome. And, and frankly, there's aspects that are still biologically unknown, and we need to further study. So um, anyways, I'll pass back. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Winston. Um, yeah, maybe first, before jumping in uh, patient selection criteria, it would be great to hear what you think the columns of data that need to be collected in order to get the most from uh, each NO1 trial are good to have. And uh, yeah, I, I know you're working progress on this, so maybe it's just a few words, but I'm curious. Right. So this is the, you know, when I think about columns, it's like if you have a giant spreadsheet with the rows being your individualized N of 1 trials, your columns would be what features of the data do you want to collect? And of course, there's a, there's a, uh, we talked about before, there's a cost benefit to, you could collect all the data in the world, but sometimes collecting data without looking for something is, um, you get incidental findings. Um, other thing is, is that you could end up making a trial incredibly onerous for the patient and the investigators if you have to mark down every single thing. So I think that's a balance that we're going to have to figure out as we continue. Um, and it's going to look different now than maybe 30 years down the road. Yeah, that's insightful. Uh, yeah, you, you are already jumping to my next question. That would be, um, if you can describe for us what is patient selection and why is it a meaningful topic right now when the field of individualized medicines is just at its birth? And what are the main inclusion criteria for patient selection? Um, how will this change to your mind as the field progresses in the next few years? I think when, when you consider drug development, right, so much of what you do with developing a completely new modality of treatment is about balancing the, the risk with what you can do for a given patient who has severe disease, right? And I think it's that risk-reward spectrum that is constantly being evaluated every single day at the FDA. When there's not a lot known about a particular intervention, especially something like gene editing that could potentially, I mean, it will affect their entire body going yeah. forward. Um, I should rephrase that. It's not their entire body, but it will be a permanent change to given cells going forward. All of that is unknown. So in the beginning, I think it's unlikely that you will um, 
you know, do it for, again, being careful to choose my words here. I think it's really important that you choose the indications that have very severe, debilitating, life-threatening outcomes where if you do this intervention, you can really expect to make uh, a difference in their quality of life, right? So this is where we can we can really um, break out the risk and the benefits um, carefully, where if we look at risk, as I said earlier, we minimize risk by changing as a few pieces of an existing drug as possible. And then we maximize benefit by trying to understand as much of the science as we can to say this particular genetic fix in this given organ, in this um, you know, time period of a patient's life, um, should have the benefit that we want. Yeah, you were saying uh, that we, we do science for the patients and not on the patients. Exactly. I, that's absolutely right. Like This is a key thing of um, we will learn certainly from this, and that's a crucial part of using the scientific methods, but that's not... That is absolutely not what we, anyone wants to do of just doing, um, you know, kind of uncalibrated and not rigorous experiments without a, the expectation of actually benefiting our patients. So, yeah, what do you think of uh, a family has to do with all this development process and, uh, yeah, the willingness of patients? Uh, well, tell us more about this. Yeah, I, I think I, I've, um, you know, in the earlier answer, like, so, so there's a, on the clinician and investigator side, there's the patient selection criteria, which is thinking about severity of disease, you know, the timing of when their disease is discovered, whether we can actually be in the, um, you know, able to make an intervention that can help them. I think from the family side, it's also about being very transparent and honest about the risks, right? There will be families just like we there's a bell, bell curve of you know of a given disease there's patients who are more severe and less severe there's also a bell curve within that bell curve of families who are more willing to say please let's go for an intervention versus saying i'd rather wait and kind of see what happens versus just doing the treatment and i think this is where it gets back to that concept of you know it has to be that informed consent the family has to know the risks and the benefits. Um, clearly, they have to be well-educated, and um, that is one of the uh, key learnings that we can take away from you know, trials of old as well as the surgical community. Yeah, I, I'm super curious about this. Uh, is there some specific difference in N of 1 trials in informed consent compared to classical trials or any other disease outside the rare disease fields? Ooh, that, that would be outside of my realm of specialty. I think we are trying to develop those in the N1C for the entire field. But folks like Tim and, and people on his team like Tori, Ashley, they have um, so much of the experience of actually doing that. So I would defer to their answer. <laughs> yeah, that's great. I will. Um, so, yeah, I think you also have a great metaphor that is still from Tim, maybe about uh, surgery and uh, genomic medicine. Can you describe this for us to finish our great episode? Yeah, so this, I mean, like so many of, of my learnings, this really comes from not only folks like Tim, but I should say all of what I've described before is just from my interactions with these master clinicians and investigators um, throughout the N1C. So Tim has this great analogy to, to transplant surgery, right, of saying, when you really think about the first successful, like kidney transplantation, right, 
or any organ transplantation. These are incredibly complex, complicated medical procedures that um, are not just like interoperatively challenging, but they have so many things about the resourcing, the psychosocial um, support, the patient selection that now has just become routine because it works, right? So the first successful kidney transplant was done on identical twins at the Brigham. And that's a very rare patient population that you're selecting, right? You're, you're literally finding identical twins so you can move the kidney from one to the other without immune rejection. This is the type of Goldilocks or like, you know, very unique patient selection that's often needed in the beginning to minimize risk and to say, we can really find the ideal um, candidates for this. But then as you start doing transplants more broadly, right, you saw that this worked, you have to think about immune rejection. You have to think about, you know, what are the ways of prioritizing people? Who are, can who are candidates and what, how do we rank them for um, a limited resource of, uh, of organs? How do we expand it beyond the kidney to other organs too? And I feel like this analogy is so apt because this is the same set of challenges that we'll have to face to make N of one individualized treatments with these new drugs, programmable medicines that we have um, coming down the pike, an accepted part of the medical practice, um, just like transplant surgery. Yeah, that was also great. Thank you so much, Winston. I really enjoyed talking to you. And yeah, I hope our listeners will also enjoy these beautiful um, insights from Winston and be looking forward to see what happens in this field as the years go by and I'm sure it will be a lot. And for now, I, I'm just looking forward to interviewing Winston next time when things will be moving forward, right? Thanks, Luca. I appreciate you taking the time to ask me the questions. You've just listened to A Biotech Futurist, a podcast by Luca Fusarbassini. This is the first series and a new episode is out every Monday. Please consider subscribing and rating the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Instagram or your top podcasting platform. And if you liked this episode, consider sharing it with your friends, as the growth of new podcasts relies on word of mouth. If you have any suggestions, don't hesitate to reach out to me on Instagram or Gmail at thebiotechfuturistpodcast at gmail.com. You can find the full AI-generated transcript of this episode on my website, lucafuzerabassini.com. I also post the links to the main papers referenced in this episode, which you can find here in the description too. Thanks for listening to A Biotech Futurist. I am looking forward to talking with you in a week.